We've all heard the story about how Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak created Apple in 1976. Two college dropouts, but they had a dream. Their dream was to make a computer so small that anybody living at home or at work could have access to it. Well, the two Steves, as they were known, first met in 1971. Steve Jobs was 16 and Woz was 21. Their first venture, building and selling blue boxes that enabled people to make long distance calls at no cost. And Jobs later told his biographer that if it hadn't been for Waz's blue boxes, there would be no Apple. Experiences like that taught us the power of ideas, the power of understanding that if you could build this box, you can control hundreds of millions of dollars worth of telephone infrastructure around the world. That's a powerful thing. You know, there's so many people out there that dream, and sadly, there's much less that dream it and do it. And then there's just an anomaly, the very few whose dreams become so big that they take over not only the imagination of the world, but the marketplace. And I have one of those stories to share with you today. It's not about computers, it's about running shoes. And interesting enough, it's not about Nike, a brand that you see, it's about Reebok. And what you'll learn that Reebok started by two brothers, the Foster brothers from Bolton, England. And their idea not only grew, it became a $3.8 billion brand, and it overtook Adidas and Nike to become the world's number one sports brand. And last year, the surviving brother, Joe Foster, wrote a book, Shoemaker, the untold story of the British family firm that became a global brand. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. And Joe's with me today on Chatter That Matters to share his remarkable story, more importantly, to inspire the next generation of budding entrepreneurs. Joe Foster, welcome to uh, Chatter That Matters. Tony, thank you for the invitation. That's incredible. Yes, what a nice story. <laughs> now, I know this is going to be a great episode on so many fronts. I mean, a family business, dreaming it and doing it, taking on two of the biggest brands in the world. But before we get into your story, Talk to me about your family. I understand that making shoes is, was part of the, the DNA of the Foster family for many years before you two got involved. Indeed, it was. Indeed, I, we have to go back to my grandfather and, uh, and even his grandfather, which takes us back uh, my grandfather in 1895. He is credited with inventing the spike running shoe. He was from Bolton. It was part of the Bolton United Harriers. Uh, it was a not a moderate runner. He enjoyed his, uh, enjoyed his running, but never sort of uh, a winner. However, his grandfather, he was a cobbler. And apart from repairing street shoes, he also repaired cricket boots. And cricket boots in those days, in sort of the late 1800s, they had spikes in the bottom. And we firmly suspect that my grandfather said, uh, Granddad, why have you got spikes in the bottom of these boots? Because in those days, cricket boots. We're pretty sure he said it gives them grip. Oh, this, this sort of lit up a little light in my grandfather's uh, thinking. Well, I'm, I'm a runner, and these sort of shoes I run in were slipping all over the place on grass or on cinder tracks. So he, he made a pair of shoes and put spikes in the bottom. His next event when he was running, yes, he came a very unlikely second, which raised a lot of interest amongst his teammates, and that was the start of his business. At that point, he started making spike running shoes, not only for local athletes, for all the athletes north of England, and eventually his business grew. Fairly well globally, although we're only talking in roses, performance. 
right now, sport is street. It's massive. And I understand, by the way, that those spike running shoes uh, helped you as an eight-year-old uh, capture a race and get a trophy. Is, is, that, <laughs> is that true? That is very true. I mean, my, my grandfather, he went on to have world records in 1904, gold medals all the way through until he died in 1933. I wasn't born until 35, so 18 months after he died, but I was born on his birthday. This is why he was called Joe Foster and I'm called Joe Foster. Grandmother insisted I'm called Joe Foster. But of course, I'm entered into a, a race, an 80-yard race, and, and I win the race. And of course, I do have that advantage of Foster's spike running shoes. I won the race and went for my prize. And of course, what did I get? I got a dictionary. And it was a Webster's Dictionary. And everybody in America knows a Webster's Dictionary. But in England, we didn't know that. We, we had the Oxford English Dictionary, which was totally different. However, I didn't know at the time, and I'm up there saying, where's the football? Why are you giving me a dictionary? Where's the football? I suppose I could kick the dictionary around a bit, but uh, yeah, we're still during the war, and this is 1943. After high school, this is obviously after the war, you have to go into the RAF. Was that sort of national service at the time, or is it just something you wanted to do to escape family life? No, no, we were all drafted. In those days, we had to do it. My brother, Jeff, he went into the Army, and I went to the Air Force almost at the same time. I heard you became quite a good badminton player in the uh, RAF. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I was a reasonably good badminton player before I went, and because I could do that, and it was a bit of luck, a real bit of luck, because uh, just before I, I arrived at my station where I was on radar, they had uh, the badminton competition between all IWF stations, and we went on to win the Shield. And because of that, it took me down to Wimbledon. We were mixing with all the uh, top badminton uh, officers and people. Um, they saw me. So that was the opportunity. I very rarely went back to my station to do radar. I was playing badminton now for a good 12, 18 months just enjoying traveling around playing badminton. What else did you learn when you were there? Because obviously badminton is a sport and there's a lot we can get from athletics, but did you get any lessons from life during those two years that you think really helped propel your business forward when you got out? I guess it's like going to college. All of a sudden you're taken away from family. You have to start thinking for yourself. You know, nobody's going to make your, uh, do your laundry, make your, your, your meals. And, uh, so you have to start thinking and you think, how can I make some advantages, you know, like, I ended up playing badminton. This was great. This was a good way out of the normal routines. And so, yeah, you, you learn and you sort of look around and you see life a little differently than you did when you were at home. Jeff and I came back after doing two years of uh, national service to the family business, and we saw a failing business. As two young kids coming out of their national service, from what I understand, it's pretty quick that you realize that this, this wasn't a business that had, a, that had cleats. The business was failing because after grandfather died, grandmother, quite a sort of uh, strict and serious person, <clears throat> she seemed to hold the company together. But for whatever reason, my father and uncle just didn't get on. They have five years difference in age. After grandmother died, they just feuded. And Jeff and myself on occasions had to pull them apart. Well, 50-50, you're running a company. What happens? The company is going down. And I, I said to father, look, uh, we need to do something different. We need to change this company or if, we, if you can't get on with uh, your brother. And he said, look, Joe, when your uncle's gone and I'm gone, this will be your company. You can do what you like with it. And I said, Dad, 
We don't want you to go. <laughs> That's not the plan. But this company will be dead long before you. We're dying. This company will be gone. Didn't make any difference. Why is it that the next generation or partnerships just fail? What did you learn along your way that you can advise others, especially family businesses that are looking to pass the torch on to the next generation? Well, I guess the, there has to be that synergy. People have to get on together. Family don't always get on. You make a lot of friends in life, but it's not necessarily your family. You hear this. If it's unfortunate that your family doesn't get on, I guess maybe Jeff learned more than I did because uh, when we did leave, Jeff was two years old with me, and it didn't take long before Jeff said, look, Joe, I'll look after the factory. He loved making shoes. And if you pick up my book, you'll find out that I don't like making shoes. I'm a rotten shoemaker. Jeff said, look, you do everything else. So marketing, whatever, the bookkeeping, um, designing. That was good because we never had a bad word between us. And, you know, I must have done a lot of stupid things in my time, and I know. Well, let's talk about the early days because it's not as glamorous as you traveling. From what I understand, the factory that you took over to start this business was in such bad shape that you had to put the machinery around the perimeter of the walls because the floor would collapse. And also that factory, you might not have loved it like your brother, but didn't you end up living there with your wife in the early days? I was married. Jeff wasn't. Jeff had a bit of money, but I had to sell my uh, my bundle or my house. This was very fortunate that with the building we went into, there were living quarters so we could live in the front side and the factory was behind it. I don't believe speed kills. Sweat is sexy. I believe life's short. Play hard. Reebok. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Joe Foster, co-founder of the world-renowned Reebok brand and now a best-selling author of his new book, Shoemaker. Puma and Adidas is where you found that you were, that was the category you chose to get into with your brother. What made you decide that was the place that you wanted to play? Because that was a category that was already becoming somewhat crowded and lots of investment in it. But what made you think that you could find something unique? And what did you find in a way that allowed you to establish your presence? We would have liked to have been in soccer. And we tried a few soccer boots. We we did. But uh, by the time Jeff and I had sort of come and set up our own factory, Adidas and Puma were well entrenched in the British market. That would have cost a lot of money. We started, we started off with cycling, which is something that Jeff was very interested in. And we soon moved on to athletics. I guess that location was a good thing for us at that time. You're a small company, but we're in the north of England. And in the north of England, we had Felbrunning. We had uh, orienteering, cross-country. This was localized. It wasn't throughout the whole of the country. We also had, uh, we, we got into rugby, but rugby league is concentrated in the north of England. So we managed to sort of own those. Right? We owned that area. That was fine, but it was small. What advice can you give to other entrepreneurs about finding that lane that you can own to at least get your business moving, as opposed to trying to be all things to all people? I think it's looking for that white space. Okay, there's competition, but you know, if you've got something special, that little white space, and you can make sure that you own that, then that, that's your foothold. All the athletes around us, they used to come into the factory, some would help. You know, if we needed some joinery, 
the guy who was a carpenter, he would come and do some work for us for nothing. A pair of shoes, maybe. It was becoming part of the community. And I suggest to anybody who, whatever you get into, well, if it is products, I mean, these days we're talking that social media now has taken over so much. You know, the fact that we're talking as we are talking now, the world is pivoting, you know, everything is. You have to start owning that first rung on the ladder, which we did. If you want to, as these days you call it, scaling up, you've got to say, what's our next step? And for me, the next step was America. I want to come back to that dictionary you got, because another part of the folklore and certainly part of your book is the naming of your company. You originally were going to be Mercury, which I understand. I mean, that's you know, the speed, the, the God, the mythology. But that wasn't available or it wasn't, you know, when you found out somebody else that owned it, you couldn't afford to buy it. So how did that dictionary that you won at age eight, that American dictionary, turn into creating one of the most well-known brand names in the world? We were doing nicely 18 months into our business and we were making money. And our, our accountant said, you've got to register that name, Joe. Unfortunately, it's already pre, uh, pre-registered by British Shoe Corporation. You have to bring me a new name. And he pointed through the window and he pointed to Kodak. And I said, what's with Kodak? They invented the name. That's their name. They made it up. It doesn't mean anything. Bring me a name like that. He said, but don't bring me one. Bring me 10. We need 10 names because to put them through the register takes time. And if you do it one at a time, you could be here in 12 months' time still trying to find a name. We sit around the table. Well, when you start laughing because the names you're coming out with are ridiculous, so you think, oh, what are we doing? How about Cougar? Cougar Sport. Falcon. How about Falcon Sport? We come to that dictionary. It's my dictionary sitting on the table next to me. And I like the letter R. I don't know why, I just like letter R. So I open my Webster's Dictionary at R, and it's not long. I get to R-W-E-B-O-K, you know, what's that? It's a small South African gazelle. Wow, gazelle, we're a running company. Gazelle, that's it, top of the list. This is a Webster's American Dictionary. Had I been looking at the Oxford English Dictionary, I would have found, or not found, the spelling R-H-E-B-O-K. Probably not as uh, interesting. I'd have probably gone past it. I put it at the top of the list. I go back to my agents and I say, here's your list. We want this one. We want Reebok. The registrar has said, look, if somebody starts making shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them right. Well, Jeff and I, we thought, that's never going to happen. Nobody's going to make it out of Reebok skin. So we, we became Reebok. However, the uh, registrar, he had his caveat because of Reebok an animal, we can only put you in part B of the register. We didn't even know there was a register 12 months ago. Now, part B, okay, we'll go in part B of the register. Ten years later, the register actually came back to us and said, we've moved you to part A of the register. Why is that? Right now, everybody knows that Reebok is a sports shoe, and the animal has to come number two. This is the pump. This is the interesting pump. It works right here. You have a little ball on the front. And you just like pump, pump, pump it up. You pump the tongue and it has an air bladder inside that compresses the air in the shoe. Let's talk about how you scaled this business because you went from like 9 million to 30 million to 300 million to $4 billion. I mean, fantastic in any sense, but these are two brothers kind of stumbling into the shoe business because their dad and their uncle couldn't get along. And now you're becoming this global phenom. So tell us how that all happened. Well, it was, uh, I mean, we have to go back to the fact that my wish was to get to America because <clears throat> we were in athletics, we weren't in soccer. And soccer was the big, big thing, UK and Europe. Uh, but athletics were big. 
And in America, of course, you've got baseball, basketball, American football. I mean, those are three big sports which are emotional. Soccer is not emotional, so it wasn't big there. Uh, athletics, though, was, well, athletics were big. Yeah, athletics was quite big. You could go to college on a sports scholarship. And I started up. 1968, I'm saying to the family, look, we need to get to America. How do you get that? It costs you a lot of money. And I said, well, just a minute. I've been reading this uh, Eurosport. And in Eurosport, the government, the British government, they advertise it for people to export to America. They're going to pay for a stand at the NSGA show in Chicago. They'll pay for the return airfare. And they'll pay for half of expenses once you're out there. No opposition. Joe, you can go. 1968, I'm off to America. And uh, we have our stand. That's nice. I didn't sign anything. But the people came along and said, well, I love your product. Where do we get this product from? And I'm saying, well, England. And I'm saying, is that New England? No, no, no. No, England, you know, across the pond. Near London? Yeah. It happened the same every time. As soon as you get these over into the, into the country and you go to distribution, you know, we'd love to try it. But that was it. So this is 1968. When did I actually get shoe into the country, into the, rework into the country? 1979. That's 11 years. I had six miserable failed attempts. We tried and we tried. What happened during that time? Late 60s, running started to become a big category in America. Started small, and with it started Runner's World. Bob Anderson was the publisher of this. By 1975, this was a 50, 60-page color, glossy magazine, everything in there. You know, we think of 350 million Americans at that time, and maybe 10% decided to take up running for fitness. You're talking 35 million. And Bob Anderson decided, well, we'll do a star rating. That was the time I knew we could make a five-star shoot. Always important, whatever you're in, make sure you know your business and what's going on. 1979, in uh, February, I'm, I'm there with my new shoe, which was Aztec, and along come uh, Kmart. Rep from Kmart said, I want 25,000 birds. Running was becoming big. Kmart wanted to get into it. Great. But if we got 25,000 birds... That would be equal to six months production for our small factory. So we had to get help. I had friends in the trade and Barter, you may not know Barter, they're still the biggest shoe manufacturer in the world. They would help me make shoes. But then the guy from Kmart said, yeah, we'll need a better price. Luckily, again, there was an agent in London for one of the biggest factories in Korea. Yeah, we can do this. Okay. Near the end of the show, uh, Paul Feynman. Paul Feynman, he, he was running an operation, Boston Camping. I got on with it very well. And I could see that his problem was that Boston Campion was just doing the same thing they'd done for 10 years. And he's saying, Joe, if you get a five-star shoe, I'll be your distributor. Showed him me Aston. He said, lovely shoe, brilliant. He said, but it's not five stars, is it? Yeah. No, I said, but we have every faith that it will be. It will be a five-star. This is February. In May, I actually take a trip to America and go and see Kmart. I'm introduced to the buyer, who was one of about 100 people sat in this enormous room. And I'm thinking, you know, if uh, I can maybe sell 25,000 pounds, but it may be my last 25,000 pounds, because they, they're going to judge me on how much they sell, not what we can do with the brand. Then I go to see Paul and his brother-in-law. And, oh, this is a nice little outfit. Yeah. Back I go. The last week in July, I decided I phone Paul. And I said, Paul, can you go down to the local kiosk? Get around this world and see how we did with the the star ratings. Took him an hour, came back, said, Joe, yeah, right, Aztec, we got five stars. I said, but not only that, your Midas and Inca, the trainer and the Spikes, they also got five stars. 
That's how we got into America. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. When we return, Joe Foster reveals how his $9 million shoe company becomes a $900 million shoe company almost overnight. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. A big shout out to RBC who have long believed that diversity is not only the right thing to do, but also the smart thing to do. Their purpose of helping clients thrive and communities prosper is core to who they are as an organization. And it's something that can only be achieved when everyone has the opportunity to achieve their fullest potential and speak up for inclusion. Diversity matters to RBC. We had the, and uh, still have, the Starcrest, which is on the, the tongue. tongue of everybody's shoe now. We used to put that also on the side of the shoe. Joe, can we use the Union Jack there instead of the Starcrest? Nobody knows the Starcrest. He said, but everybody in America knows the Union Jack. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Joe Foster, co-founder of the world-renowned Reebok brand, and now a best-selling author of his new book, Shoemaker. Six failures. I mean, the first time your family was reluctant for you to go because America was too big and too complex. How did you keep their faith for six failures that it was still worth investing in? Like a lot of people would have said, you know what? It's just too big of a pond to fish in. You didn't stop. Why? Everybody had faith in the fact that I would at least succeed in getting people to work with me over there. And so we were selling small amounts. We were doing bits and pieces. But we were not getting that spread of the business. We were not building anything. And I, and I guess that um, it was like, well, where else do you go? We, you can go to Europe, and we did go to Europe. But Europe was 28, 30 countries with the same amount of languages, different requirements. That was a tough one to be in. I think you have to sustain your idea and your ideals on what you want to do. We did pick up uh, distribution in Canada through doing this. So we, we were doing minor things. Things were happening, but not in, the, not in the way we needed it. I knew we could do it. You know, Bill Rogers, Frank Schroeder, these were athletes in America, well-known athletes at the time. They actually bought our shoes. Ron Hill had actually won the Boston Marathon in the late 60s in record time. And, and he wore our shoes. So I, I knew there was a, a groundswell there. Just, we just needed that extra. What was it? And of course, the fact that running became such a big category, that was the thing. We arrived as a running company, but that's not where we make our fortune. I mean, you've got these athletes actually paying to use your shoes and they're winning. You've got the three five-star ratings, but it was really Hollywood and pop culture that took you in a completely new universe where people said it's not just the shoe to run in, it's the shoe to be seen in. To get into the shoe to be seen in, of course, we had to uh, we had to do something different. And when we talk about white space, I'd always look for white space, but I wasn't looking. It was a guy called Angel Martinez who was down, he was our tech rep down in LA. His wife, Angel's wife, was going to these aerobic classes. And she was going with her friends that were coming back. And I was saying, what are you doing? You're full of it. Well, Frankie said, well, we're actually uh, exercising to music. And it's fabulous. Really? So I said, can I come down to your next uh, class? And yep, can. Off he went to the next class. Sees the instructor wearing a pair of sneakers. And we think they were New Balance sneakers. And half the class were wearing the same. The other half, they were just barefoot. They weren't wearing any shoes. And I thought, why don't we make a shoe specifically for these women? On a woman's last, woman's sizes, and we'll make it in glove leather. 
He's in LA, Paul's in Boston. It was an act like, you know, the red eye, up to, I see Paul, fantastic new scene going on down in LA. We must get into it. Paul said, we're a running company. Why do we want to make shoe, dancing shoes for girls? The conversation didn't last much longer, but uh, Arnold went round to the back door and he did a better job with Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was our product man. And uh, he managed to persuade Steve to get in 200 pairs of samples. Okay, when they arrived, he's down there in LA, gives them to all the instructors and some of the leading girls down there would wear them and use them. They'd love them. Fantastic. However, they're made of glove leather. And glove leather, it's like a piece of paper. You can just tear it, just simple. Well, you can imagine when people are jumping up and down in that, after a month, they were falling apart. But you know, we were lucky. This was LA, this was America. They loved the shoes so much they didn't care. The girls went out and bought another pair. We eventually got that right. We eventually used something more like a, a garment leather. So you still got the softness, still, but it was much plumper and it uh, didn't fall apart. What happened now? James Fonda. James Fonda went out and bought a pair and started to wear them in our videos. That was it. We had arrived. We arrived as a $9 million company. All of a sudden, we became a woman's company. Because $9 million, we're not big. We're not challenging Nike. We're not challenging Adidas, who are male, who are sweaty. We come in with a nice, beautiful shoe, and it's women glowing in these shoes. Women had not had a category of their own. This was something totally new. So in the next year, we were $30 million, then $90 million, $300 million, $900 million in those four years at, uh, of growth. It was tremendous, and it was all to do with women. How did your relationship with your brother, because I have to imagine as you started to bring in new management and new staff, that the, the whole dynamics of your culture is changing. Did you guys continue to have that incredible glue that you watched after each other, or was, or was there some divide and conquering that naturally happens when businesses become big that quick? Well, this is the sad part. August 1979, we got our five stars. Fortunately, my brother died in March 1980. Oh. He was an athlete. He just wanted to win. In doing that, he pushed himself every time. And every time he finished a race, which was every week, he would be physically sick. And, and I think that just accumulated to the point where he, he developed cancer of the stomach. Tragic blow at that time. We were just on that cusp. He never saw it. Three people, I'd say three people on to, to replace him because he did so many things at that point. I'm not trying to present this as a religious question, but more of a spiritual one. Do you think your grandfather and your brother are looking down and realizing that so much of what's happened through your life, they're part of or they experienced somehow? Well, I guess those sort of feelings, because we go through life with dreams and our imagination, and I guess those sorts of feelings, they do sort of help you spur you on and make you feel that you have to do it. And I think that when Jeff died, it was a question of what would we do now? Do we sort of fall down and crumble, or do we, do we double up when we get more determined? I guess this was an extra spur. We've got to make it happen, because this, this would have made Jeff so fabulously happy. You know, this business continues to build, and one day you choose to sell it. And I'm curious, because what got you to the point where you just said, I've done all I want to do with this, and now it's time to do other things? I think what happens as you grow, you do recognize the fact that uh, you, you can do so much. You need a lot of people. And the whole company, it, it has to be a lot of people. You have to have people sharing in the company. But there was the opportunity, you know, growing from 
90 to 300 to 900 million needed money, needed people. For me, it was a question of saying, well, I can refuse this and then we'll fail because we could, we would starve that job. We, we would have lost out on aerobics because you can only go as, as fast as your money, your opportunity will allow. And they needed a lot more money. And Stephen Rubin was willing to bank the company. It took an awful lot of money in those early days. Okay, by the time we got to over 300 million, just the revenues turnover was good enough to give us enough credit to, to do it. But it, it needed that boost of money. And for me, we could have stayed a small company because as the other companies, as Adidas and uh, Nike saw this growth, they would have turned to it and sort of said, you know, if we failed, they would have just picked it up. As it happened, we just, we just kept it going. There was no space for them to get into. It was something that we owned. And to have that ownership, I wasn't concerned about Joe Foster. Nobody knew of Joe Foster until fairly recently. Since writing the book, Joe Foster's become uh, a name. Until then, and it was the same for me. Who's Joe Foster? What we want is Reebok. We want to take that opportunity. We don't want to lose that opportunity. For me, this is what, what, we, what we see today, and I, I talk at universities, and the first thing they say, what was your exit plan? We didn't have an exit plan. We were building a brand. This wasn't just something we get into and go and make a lot of money. We were building a brand. We were more into the emotion than to the, uh, uh, the financial achievements. That, and at that time, it was, this is an opportunity for Reebok to grow, go bigger than Adidas, go bigger than Nike, and become the number one. I don't regret anything. We became number one. That was the mission. I have a different mission now because I wrote a book. I'd been asked by different people, why don't you write your book? Could be interesting. So that really turned it, and that made me say, oh, I'm writing the book now, to get this story straight. And now it's like, if you write a book, you need people to read it. So the mission now, the new mission, the new challenge, become a bestseller in America, because that's where really Reebok grew. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. The book has been surprisingly uh, well received. People are reading it and thinking, Man, you know, this, there's a lot of lessons in it. I didn't write it for lessons. I wrote it because about 10 years ago, I'm in Tenerife and I'm enjoying life. I'm, I'd step back from Reebok and I'm reading in Wikipedia and in Google. This is how Reebok started. And there's a photograph, a photograph of Joe Foster. And it may well be Joe Foster, but it certainly was not me. My guest is Joe Foster. With his brother, he started that business on a shoestring, grew it into the world's largest running shoe brand, and he writes a book, Shoemaker, to set the record straight. You did decide there's a lot of people, you had a lot of capital involved. Did you feel you were pushed out or you lost authority in the company as it got bigger? Or, or the, you know, there's the founder's dilemma, which was, it was just time to sell and do other things. I mean, what ultimately led to that decision where Adidas came in? I think they they paid over well over $3 billion to the business. For me, it was, uh, okay, I put four or five men on in 1980. After that, I also grew the global business. I put on another 30 distributions globally. And I said to Paul, Paul, you look after America. Leave me with the rest. Don't worry about that. The ball was in the American area, and that's where we grew. And for 10 years, I was going around the world. I was also hosting uh, a pro-celebrity event in Monte Carlo, and I'm going to, wherever I go to, I'm picked up by a limousine. 
I'm going to the best hotels and the best restaurants. And this is fine. And then I'm mixing with A-listers and I'm thinking, Joe, I'm 55. It's, you know, it's a young man's game, this. And it really is. New ideas, new, new, new thinking. So it was time for me to step back. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem because why I'm here today is because the one thing that nobody can change is I'm a founder. There is, there is no new founder. It's like if you want to talk to a founder, I'm here. When I've talked to a lot of founders and they're, you know, it's like you, they have such humility and they talk about all the people and they help them along the way. Ultimately, it comes down to a couple of really big breaks. You mentioned the aerobics is one of them. And you got obviously the five stars that your shoes got. Was there anything else along the way that sort of said that took us from, you know, having a dream to having to realize it was a bit of a runaway race? Well, I mean, yeah, those were the two big things. But for me, spending 11 years, you know, to achieve that, uh, to get into the market and find a way in the Aztec, that was like the, wow, we've done it. We found the key and we found the gatekeepers. We got in. You know, and people say there's no such thing as luck. It's just being ready when the opportunity arises. But I'm sorry. I mean, I was talking to a guy in, in New York some time ago now. And we were talking about luck. And he said, Joey said, I'm just so lucky to have been born in America, born in New York. Just think of all the other people who are not. So when we start talking about luck, there's luck there. And yes, there is being ready for the opportunity. But, you know, you can't be ready for every opportunity that comes along. You've got to be in the right zone at the right time. And you if know, you hadn't become a shoemaker, what do you think Joe Foster would have done with his life? Hard to say, because I did two years national service and I got on very well with a lot of people. And, of course, at the end of doing your national service, we... Basically, I was doing radar, which was controlling uh, fighter jets. So it was a big temptation to stay and become a fighter pilot. <laughs> After that, I, I think it could have been electronics, and maybe electronics would have led me into the technical field that we have now, but I have to rely on my wife now for the technology. She sets these things up. She, yeah. Um, I think that's age. Which so, shoe did your competitors make that you wish you had? I, I never wanted to uh, think highly of the competitor's shoes. It was like, where do we go? What can we do? How can we do something better? More than shoes, I think with Adidas, it was good how they moved away from that very, very heavy leather that we used to use in soccer boots in the old days. And that's probably why Foster's didn't really get do big in, in soccer. Although on saying that, we have a letterhead from 1920s and they were supplying every premiership team in the UK. By the time Jeff and I got into the business, they'd lost that. Somewhere, Foster's fails to scale up, obviously. I mean, it's very easy to say, well, if your uncle and your father just don't get on, that's it. Maybe also two world wars didn't help. But uh, they could have, I think they could have scaled up. I think that's where they failed. But, you know, Jeff and myself, we saw that. We worked together. We did manage to get that scaling up to the point where we became number one. Do you think part of it is this concept of risk? Because you get to a certain point, you're no longer living in the factory. You know, you're creating wealth. Things are good. That some people just might not want to risk to go after more. They're sort of, they say, I, I want to contain my dream now because I'm I'm happy with where, where I am in it. Versus what it sounds like with you two is, I was there to, to build a brand. Well, I think if you're a true entrepreneur, you're such an optimist that you've got to continue. I think if you stop, 
you've just got a bit of luck there, but you're not an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur, it's, it's not gambling. It's taking a risk. But the risk is something that you need because you need that ability, that, that challenge to get from one place to the next. You need, you've got to take that. If it was so easy, everybody would do it. 11 years to get into America, but we could do it. That was a big jump. That was a big, long time, but we did it. If you look now at the classic, the Reebok classic, it still has the same sole that I designed in 1978. We, we also still have the star crest on the tongue, which is the one that I go on. So there's so much of me still I see in Reebok. But Joe, I always end my episode with my three takeaways. And first of all, I just want to say I'm so moved you're sharing your story, but more importantly, that you wrote that book, because what you said, number one, is a lesson to every entrepreneur out there. You can never take away the founder's title. I mean, that is the beginning of the starting race. And that race might go on generations that might go on for a century. But the fact is the founder, the entrepreneur started the race and you, and you did it side by side with your brother. And I think that is just fantastic. The second thing is this sense of I didn't really think about my competitors. I thought about white space. You know, it's almost like Henry Ford said, if I asked the customer what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And, you know, you've always looked for that white space and double down when you saw it. And I think that's a great lesson for entrepreneurs. You stayed within your lane, you understood your lane, but you also realized you had to make space in that lane. And then the final thing is just something that I think is another powerful lesson, which is you're not a true entrepreneur if you're not willing to take on risk and to go after something. And I love what you said, we didn't have an exit strategy. We were there to build a global brand. Joe Foster, I hope you know how inspiring you are. You know, this is another great lesson in life to people listening, that there's so much incredible wisdom and energy and powerful lessons in life locked in with people that have run gauntlets like yours. And uh, I just hope I can do my part and continue to, uh, to share stories about positivity and possibility, because I certainly know you made my day doing so. So thank you. Thank you, John. It's been incredible. It's a pleasure. It really is. Joe Foster makes it happen. His story proves that what lies within human nature can be a powerful and unstoppable force, positivity and possibility. Well, I have another person I want you to meet who embodies similar attributes. She's Megan Hines. She's the president of Power Hockey Canada and a three-time international team player who's averaged over a point a game playing for a Toronto club since 1999. Megan, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much for having me. What is power hockey for the listeners that don't realize what an incredible sport you're helping to uh, foster around the world? Yeah, for sure. So power hockey is one of the few pair sports for individuals who use power wheelchairs. So it's based off the rules of ice hockey with some differences. For instance, it's played on a gym floor. Um, we also have, you know, we don't have icing, but we have a penalty like dangerous driving, for instance. Um, it's also distinctively inclusive uh, from the perspective of, you know, it's open to a very broad age range of individuals. We have people who are as young as like eight, nine, 10 kind of thing, playing up to in their 60s and 70s playing. Also, you know, men and women playing together. But one of the key things from the inclusivity perspective is that it's open to a broad range of individuals with disabilities. You know, those with very limited upper body strength, like myself, who may have muscular dystrophy or spinal cord injuries, but also individuals who may have full upper body strength. And everyone has a role on the floor, um, no matter what your physical ability may be. And you said in a recent article that you wouldn't be the person you are today if it wasn't for power hockey. 
So it's really mattered that much to you. And give our audience a sense of why beyond just the the spirit of competition. For myself, you know, I wouldn't have the same opportunities that I've had today uh, if it wasn't for power hockey. Things like traveling the world, representing my country, uh, you know, being able to excel at a a sport um, that I've loved, you know, since a very young age. Um, You know, developing skills that are transferable both in my, you know, power hockey career, but also in my employment career or, you know, education and whatnot. And, but also really developing that network of individuals. Some of my closest friends I met through power hockey, my fiance we met through power hockey, and even opportunities, for instance, being able to lead a national pair sport organization like Power Hockey Canada to be able to develop our sport. And, you know, really in turn, if I didn't have a disability, um, a lot of people think, you know, when you have a disability that, you know, life is more challenging and it's something to feel sorry for. But for me, like I say, no, you know, for me, without having a disability, I wouldn't have all these experiences and I wouldn't, again, in turn, be really the person I am today. You talk about your team as sort of your family. How important is it across humanity to always have a place where you feel you belong? It's true in the sense that they're my closest friends. We share, you know, a common experience, you know, loving the sport of power hockey, but also, you know, learning from each other, you know, having that network of individuals with disabilities that, you know, learning how to navigate life with a disability. Things like when I was younger, you know, I, I started playing when I was nine years old and grow, really growing up in the sport and playing with other players who were in their 20s and 30s and, you know, seeing those individuals that were working full time or did go to university or college or whatever it may be and being like, hey, if they can do it, why can't I? And so, you know, really seeing that those mentors that I um, can relate to. So you work for RBC and when you were competing in a recent tournament, your RBC manager back home arranged a viewing party. How did that make you feel to know that you had the support not only of your team, but your team of RBCers cheering for you? No, absolutely. It's something that really motivated me even more, you know, having the country behind us, but, you know, at a more like personal level, my RBC family as well. Even before the game, my manager and coworkers were texting me being like, hey, we're here for you, you know, here's some pictures of, you know, the, the sides we've made and just having that and knowing that my RBC family is more than just, you know, my career and know more than just our day-to-day type thing, but really we, you know, get to know each other at, you know, the individual level beyond that. And they've, it's been so supportive throughout my career at RBC. And after competing in the World Cup and spending time with the international power hockey community, I'd love your reflections around what are the opportunities to advance the cause of accessibility and inclusion across our country, around the world? Yeah, I think, you know, when I think about accessibility and inclusion of people with disabilities, we often think of, you know, our go-to is like physical barriers. You know, those things really need to be improved kind of thing. But And, and those are definitely important. I think uh, we have a long way to go in some aspects of that. But in terms of competing, you know, with these, with these world-class competitors, meeting people from other countries, it really just shows that there's more to accessibility and inclusion beyond just like our initial go-to things. You know, in order to have true accessibility and inclusion, we need individuals with disabilities to be able to fully participate and truly fully participate in every aspect of life. Employment, you know, social aspects, travel, and sport is really just one of those aspects, you know, having the, you know, seriousness behind the competition and the legitimacy behind the World Cup. All of us participating were true world-class para-athletes. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, we do have a really strong foundation in Canada specifically, but I think in, in order to eventually reach that true inclusion, we really, like I said, have to have the inclusion and accessibility a part of all, all aspects of our daily life, 
not just kind of the initial go-tos that we often think of. Megan Hines, I'm a fan. I'm excited to see where you go next, and I hope you keep your point-of-game statistics going because that's pretty impressive. Thank you. (laughs) Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.